Welcome back, warriors. Tanse, Sego, Ani, Buju, Kwe, Nindaluizi, Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. Today, I want to talk to you about the resistance. And I think most of you know what I'm referring to. I'm talking about the native resistance that is happening all around us and has been going on since contact. But today's show is specific. It's about the heart of the modern resistance and our native women warriors. This podcast is based on an article I published for Counteraction Magazine. And what I'll do is I'll post a link in the description so that you can have a copy of it. We know that Native women have always played a central role in our nations as life givers. They bridge the spirit and the human worlds to nurture our baby into adulthood with the help of large extended families. It's one of the most important roles in nation building, but it's not the only role that has been held by Native women. It's important to remember that traditionally, Native women also acted as interpreters, negotiators, political advisors and strategists, leaders, decision makers, and on-the-ground warriors. Now, it's true, our nations had diverse and varied traditions and practices, so it wasn't the same in each nation all over Turtle Island. But Native women were also engaged in different capacities in picking leaders, being leaders, choosing our head warriors, being our head warriors, or making decisions related to things like land use and who could use hunting in specific trading areas. These were jobs that were incredibly important to nation building and sustaining our nations. And it's also for this reason the fact that Native women were so central to the strength and well-being of our nations, that colonial and modern governments targeted Native women in their attempts to suppress our Native nations and dispossess us of our lands, resources, and even our own existence. Indian policy has always been focused on acquiring Indigenous lands and resources, and reducing financial obligations acquired through treaties and other agreements. Their primary methodology was either to eliminate Indians or assimilate Indians, and that was all Indians, male and female alike. While government officials engaged in genocidal acts like the use of smallpox-infected blankets to try to spread disease faster, or the scalping bounties that were placed on the Mi'kmaq heads of men, women, and children to encourage other people to literally murder us out of existence. Government officials have also taken aim specifically at Native women with very lethal precision. From the earliest days, Indian agents, often assisted by the police, would withhold food rations from young Native women and girls to extort sex from them. Children were literally ripped from the arms of Native mothers and forced into residential schools where they were starved, tortured, medically experimented on, physically and sexually abused, and where thousands died horrible deaths. 
Native women and girls were subjected to forced sterilizations, many without their knowledge or consent. And for those that have survived, Canada's Indian Act, which was created in 1876 but still exists today, specifically targeted Native women and their children to be removed from our communities and our nations in ways and degrees that have not been done to Native men. And it's ongoing today. That's part of the problem. This isn't just a, oh, this all happened in the past, get over it. This is, it's still ongoing. And this is the real history of how Canada and the United States were founded on our Turtle Island. It was based on the exploitation and genocide of millions of Native peoples and specifically targeting Native women for removal from our lands and our territories, both legally and physically. Yet the passage of time hasn't lessened Canada's approach to eliminating our peoples, nor have they disengaged from the genocidal policies which target Native women and girls. And here's a few examples, and I'm sure most of you have heard about this in the media. But today, there are more First Nation children stolen from their mothers and placed into foster care today than during the height of residential schools. Three times as many. And while Native people only make up 4% of the total population of Canada, Native children make up 50% of all kids in, in care. Native women are the fastest growing prison population, increasing by 109% in the last decade. Native women make up more than 36% of the federal prison population, and Indigenous girls represent 53% of all youth in corrections. But this is these are just the national numbers. If you look at it on a provincial basis, there are some areas where youth corrections are 98% Native girls. It, it, it is a crisis unlike any other and it continues to increase in this country. More than 60% of Native kids live in poverty in Canada and the majority of those are headed by single parent Native mothers. In addition, Native women and girls have long been the targets of sexualized violence from government agencies, police, and people in society. There's an estimated minimum of 4,000 Native women and girls that have gone murdered or missing in the last few decades. Of the known cases, Native women represent 16% of all women murdered in Canada, but they're only 4% of the population. But again, just like foster care numbers, if you look at the provincial numbers, Native women represent 55% of all those murdered in Saskatchewan and almost 50% in Manitoba. The Human Rights Watch report uh, noted that Native women and girls in BC couldn't even go to the police for help because it was the RCMP themselves who were physically and sexually abusing Native women and girls with relative impunity. Very few charges ever brought forward. Other places in Quebec, for example, in Val d'Or, there were widespread reports of physical and sexual abuse by police officers against Native women and girls. It led to the suspension of some of the officers, 
but it didn't result in any criminal charges in most cases. Part of the problem here is this high level of impunity for violence against Native women and girls. And it sends a very strong message to society that we're somehow less worthy of protection, less worthy of basic human rights, and it's part of the ongoing problem. And despite the many decades of complaints of sexualized violence and justice inquiries and commissions that have long said that there's a deep-rooted problem of racism and abuse by police, very little has been done to stop it. Now, some have said to me, you know, come on, Pam, we now have a prime minister who claims to be a feminist and also claims that there's no relationship more important to him than the one with indigenous peoples. Well, unfortunately, not much has changed under the liberal leadership. Once all of his fluffy words are separated from their inaction, it's easy to see that no help has been coming from Trudeau's 50% female cabinet, I might add. And that includes people like Minister Bennett, Minister Philpott, and former Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould. Similarly, despite decades of litigation against Canada for literally ongoing sex discrimination in the Indian Act, which still targets Native women and children for exclusion from Indian status and banned membership, Canada still refuses to eliminate all of this discrimination. And this is despite the fact of losing every single court case in Canada, various United Nations human rights treaty bodies saying you have to end this gross violation of human rights, that sex discrimination in the Indian Act is a root cause of murder to missing in Native women and girls. Canada still refuses to eliminate the rest of the sex discrimination. But given that equality amongst political elites in Canada has not resulted in relief for Native women and girls, some have referred to protections in Canada's Native laws. But despite the many legal protections, whether you're talking about, you know, hu Provincial Human Rights Act, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or, or any of the laws that are designed to protect Native women and women in general, Governments continue to deny them access and fight against them every single time. They've refused to abide by Canadian Human Rights Tribunal cases, which has literally directed Canada to st stop discriminating against Native kids in foster care. I mean, there can be no greater form of violence against a Native woman than to steal her children and put them into foster care or forcibly sterilize a Native woman or allow police, teachers, doctors, lawyers, social workers to sexually violate Native women with impunity. I mean, this government even refused to outlaw coerced sterilization of Native women. I mean, that should be a no-brainer. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. But if that was not enough, it's, it's important to remember that all while this is happening, while they continue to try to weaken our nations by targeting our Native women, our, our Native lands continue to be taken up for things like mining, uh, hydroelectric development, and other extractive industries, which we all know now 
poses significant risks of sexualized violence against Native women and girls from man camps and the influx of thousands of non-Native men that come in there. In the end, though, despite the multiple overlapping crises faced by our nations and the dual disadvantage faced by Native women and girls, it seems to be that it's our Native women who educated, organized, and helped lead the largest Indigenous social movement in Canada's history, Idle No More. Native women lawyers, academics, grassroots leaders, community members all got together and started conducting teach-ins in First Nations to help inform our people about what was happening with um, conservative legislation being imposed on our nations, the ongoing violation of our treaties, the many broken political promises, and the socioeconomic crisis that is literally killing our people. From there, we used our familial, communal, national, and political contacts to coordinate and organize additional teach-ins, protests, rallies, sit-ins, blockades, and press conferences. Idle No More literally became a household name, and the movement found support in many other countries, including in the United States, where Native communities held their own rallies and marches in support of our movement. Myself, together with some amazing strong Native women like Tanya Capo, Janice Makokis, Sylvia McAdam, and Nina Wilson, with many others from around the country, formed informal networks to help educate our people with a view to taking action. So not just information, but action. And we worked together with other Native men, uh, women, elders, youth, traditional and elected leaders, but we also worked with non-Native social justice allies like Sheila McLean, Jessica Gordon, and literally thousands of others who shared similar concerns about what was happening in Canada, from Black Lives Matter, to feminist organizations, to human rights organizations, anti-poverty organizations, and environmental groups, everyone that had an interest in social justice and earth justice came together under Idle No More. Now it's true, the round dances and the media frenzy has died down, but Idle No More has forever changed the political landscape and so have Native women leaders. The media now regularly engages on Native issues, they include more Native women experts, and sometimes they're even uh, the media commentators themselves. And grassroots Native people have been remobilized in places where they weren't, supported in places where they were already engaged in their own activism, and truly supported by the solidarity of boots on the ground. Now, the same activists involved in Idle No More, hundreds of them across the country, are working behind the scenes, now advising their uh, traditional and elected leaders educating their families, and continuing to educate their own communities and nations, and strategizing on next steps. Just because you don't see Idle No More signs in the media anymore, doesn't mean they're not at work behind the scenes. And that is one of the powerful things about Native women leaders. They don't need to be seen to be active and taking action on the ground.
There's literally thousands of uncelebrated Native women warrior heroes that are doing work to protect our people and our rights and our lands right now. You can find some of these Native women continuing their I Don't Know More work as experts in parliamentary hearings, Senate hearings, in United Nations human rights forums, and behind the scenes uh, in, in advising on litigation or organizing local protests or boots on the ground to protect Native lands and waters from further destruction. Native women warriors are literally the heart of the resistance in many ways. But it's always done within the context of family, community, and nation, working alongside Native men, elders, traditional and political leaders, and of course, our ancestors who always walk beside us. As big of an impact that Idle No More made, it's important to remember that Native activism didn't start or end with the Idle No More movement. Our ancestors have been engaging in acts of resistance since contact. Native women and men have worked alongside each other to resist the genocidal policies inflicted upon our people for now hundreds of years. And we know that our men and boys have long suffered many decades of racism, abuse, and neglect in similar and different ways. Many of our men and boys have literally died at the hands of police officers, teachers, corrections, and other state agencies. But I think it's specifically important to note or to acknowledge that Native women and girls have taken on the role of being warriors in the face of such direct targeting by Canada and also in the face of nearly insurmountable socioeconomic barriers. Not only have we had to challenge Canada's political, legal, and economic structures, but now our own. We've had to challenge our own male-dominated Native organizations who put Native women's issues at the very bottom of the barrel. We've had to confront intergenerational trauma in our nations that have been caused by decades of brutal colonization. And the struggle isn't over. I mean, colonization has just wreaked havoc on our nations and our communities and our families. And we're literally all at different stages of decolonization. But there's also a lot of uh, rebuilding that has to be done and reconnecting. And what I think is that Native women you know, especially these Native women warriors have helped re-inspire our youth and remind others that we as women have a great deal of power within us to affect change. We're not just concerned about the things that people think are stereotypically associated with women, but we are as concerned about our nations as anyone else. And I think the fact that we have survived Canada's lethal policies which targeted grandmothers, mothers, aunties, sisters, and little girls is a symbol of our strength and our resilience and our refusal to give up our lands, cultures, and, ident and, and identities. Our people and our ways are beautiful. They help sustain us as a people. 
Native women have risen up to protect that beauty. And in so doing, not only protect our nations now, but offer hope for our future generations that are yet unborn. Those children and grandchildren, seven generations into the future, to whom we are directly responsible. But imagine how much faster things would change if we all did something to lift up the voices of Native women warriors or supported them in their on-the-ground actions. Imagine how much we could accomplish together if we were able to harness that energy and, and propel it forward in ways we've never even thought about by coming together. I mean, there's so many Native warriors that come to mind. And I always think, I mean, there's, I have a ton of sisters, but there's several of my warrior sisters like Patsy, Glenda, Phoebe, Tara, and Tanya who come to mind, you know, that I grew up with, uh, who fought really hard to protect our rights. But there's also literally hundreds of Native women warriors that have been and continue to stand in defense of our rights, our lands, and our people, and they're doing it right now. Warriors like Canna House Manuel, Sharon McIver, Cindy Blackstock, Ellen Gabriel, Sharon Maloney, and Viola Robinson. And if you don't know these women, you should make that your project for today to find out about them and how they have contributed to our nations and also how they've contributed to our future and protecting our rights. I also hope to have them on this podcast to talk about their warrior journeys so we can all appreciate their efforts and their lessons learned. It's widely recognized on Turtle Island that Native women are the heart of our nations. And there's a Native quote that summarizes this idea perfectly. A nation is not conquered until the hearts of its women are on the ground. Then it's finished, no matter how brave its warriors or how strong their weapons. Let's make this the year of Native women warriors and take back our lands and our nations once and for all. Thank you for tuning in to my show. Like I said, I'll post the link to this original article from Counteract Magazine in case you want it as a reference. If you like my podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing, liking it, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitchers. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalin. Well,